0: Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brant. And on this episode, throw away your Scorpions Picture Discs because it's (laughs) SST 265, the Meat Puppets No Strings Attached Double LP compilation.
1: Why would I throw away my Scorpions Picture Discs, man?
0: Brant, throw away.
1: That's a terrible idea. Throw
0: away your Scorpions Picture Discs. So we've had these tracks on before. And, you know, as you have heard us say in the last, you know, few months, anyways. That's going to happen a fair amount between now and as we head toward the end. But it's a great excuse to get back into the Me Puppets, Uh, one of Brant's favorite bands on SST. I'm not quite a super fan like Brant is, but I definitely appreciate them. And it was a great excuse to revisit these songs, even though this compilation was not really authorized by the band. It exists and we must cover it. And to help us out, Brant, we've got... An amazing guest.
1: Yeah, we've got Ray Farrell on the show.
0: Ah, so cool to have Ray on. Ray has got amazing stories. One of the, uh, you know, key figures in the SST story for a period of time. And then for many years later, in so many areas of music that we still love to this day. So, just awesome. Just awesome. Before we do that, Brent, before we get into this record and hear from Ray... Why don't you hit us with some spiel's?
1: Ten alphabetical albums, letter L by artist, not album title. What do you think of that? Two two episodes in a row, Ryan. Wow. What do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> He's speechless.
0: <I'm> so- <laughs> uh, well, well, you're cer- you're certainly proving me wrong. So mm-hmm. you got ten. Yep. Starting with the letter L. So now, is there going to be like uh, L-lettered? people's first names like you know leon redbone leon redbone that's what you're going to get in letter l from brandt leon redbone
1: do it could happen last burning embers lessons in redemption 2004 self-released i can't recall where i heard about this album um, possibly mentioned by jack rabbit in the big takeover he's the drummer in the band Uh, thomas burke on bass and david burkos guitar and vocals Uh, Jack and David also played together in Springhouse in the 90s. This is the only album they did, but it's excellent, moody rock. They cover the Wipers classic, Nothing Left to Lose, if that gives you kind of an indication. Nice. It's a good album. Local Heroes SW9. Do you know them, Ryan? I do. Yeah. Drip Dry Zone, 1980 on UK label Oval Records. This is their debut. They followed it up with an EP. Uh, the driving force was guitarist-vocalist Kevin Armstrong, who would go on to play with Bowie on several albums, uh, also collaborating on songwriting with him. Uh, he's played with Thomas Dolby, he's toured as Sinead O'Connor's guitarist, he's he played on Iggy's Blah Blah Blah, and uh, was his musical director for the 86-87 World Tour. This is post-punk, kind of New Order meets Pill maybe, a bit of Fall thrown in, it's good, It's cheap enough used, but it's also never been released on CD and never been reissued on LP, which is odd. Bassist Matthew Seligman uh, went on to play with the Soft Boys. He's the bassist on Underwater Moonlight. So uh, lots of history with Local Heroes SW9.
0: Yeah, Drip Dry Zone is awesome. It's funny you mentioned Sinead O'Connor. I became like low-key obsessed with Sinead. I become low-key obsessed with her every three years or so, but I did again... Over the holidays, because I watched, I did, I didn't realize that there was a somewhat recent documentary out about her, oh. and I watched that, and uh, hmm. still, still a very powerful musician for me.
1: Hundred percent. Have you have you heard her reggae album?
0: No. Hmm. You know what? Like I know her first four records really well, and then after that, kind of fell off. I really need to find those. Yeah.
1: Okay. Lost Tribe Solace. 2014 on Orange County label Mass Media Records. Uh, this is their third release, uh, probably their last. Um, vocalist Darcy Bales passed away in 2022. Uh, they were a Richmond, Virginia band. Davey had gone on to form this band, The Wraith, who had a really good album on Southern Lord in 2019. Um, sounds, you know, like he had some struggles with with addiction. Both bands were kind of gothy post punk with synthesizers. Um, kind of, uh, brighter than a a thousand suns outside the gate era killing joke. That's kind of the easy comparison. Um, but it's, I'd say it's pretty accurate too, with some crust anarcho punk vibes. It's good stuff. Sounds like pretty legendary around, uh, Richmond as well, Mm. but Mm. not as, not as legendary as the alternatives. No, no. (laughs) Uh, living color times up. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I loved Vivid when it came out, still do and I, I still have my original cassette copy of of this the follow- up 1990s times up. Uh, Vivid gets all the acclaim. It's still the album that I think allows the band to tour at the level they do to this day. But I you know, I think many casual fans have never heard this or some of their other albums, which you know, some of their other stuff is hit or miss. Uh, this one's a hit in my opinion. I've always loved it. Uh, So when the 33 and a third series announced they had a book coming out, um, in their series on it, I was totally jacked, bought it, loved it. Uh, Kimberly Mack was a young black teenager, uh, who discovered the band at a, you know, a pivotal age. And she does an amazing job discussing like the, the political and social climate of the early nineties, how the band's politics and lyrics helped her relate. Um, she also interviewed all of the band members about the creation of the album, um, and that's all super enlightening. I would say if you were a Gen Xer, or um, especially a fan of the band, you'll love this book. Um, and they give a ton of respect to the Bad Brains, unsurprisingly.
0: Yeah. Well, I was just gonna say that record in particular, and everyone I think knows that Living Color was heavily influenced by Bad Brains, but this record in particular, and especially that, like the title track, yeah, time times up. If you can't hear dr no in that track like it's crazy
1: that was very intentional by the way
0: for sure by the band yeah for sure i have all their records they're all great um i wouldn't say hit or miss i would say some are just more consistent than others that's that's a
1: better way of putting it for sure yeah
0: but i would say like definitely check out stain though those three yeah vivid times up and stain just absolutely killer
1: Yeah, I think Stain gets unfairly maligned as like their grunge era album or something.
0: Yeah, it's good.
1: Yeah. Okay, Lightning Raiders, Sweet Revenge. This is a comp that came out on the great reissue label Rock Candy in 2012. Uh, They were kind of lumped in with the UK pub rock scene um, with an interesting six degrees of Ginnovation connection. Um, That might be a bit of a stretch, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, The main songwriter in the band was Johnny Guitar Hodge. Uh, He was the guitarist in the band. Various members came in and out, uh, including Paul Cook and Steve Jones, who played on the debut single, apparently as a debt to guitarist Andy Allen, who had played bass on their track Silly Thing. Gas Wild eventually became the vocalist, who later played drums with Thunders and Chrissy Hines Band. Uh, The original lineup got their start backing up Twink on a track he wrote called do It.
0: Oh, the guy from Pink Fairies.
1: Yeah. Hey? Yeah, yeah. nice. Um, lots of connections to Pink Fairies in Lightning Raiders, actually. Musically, they're more akin to The Boys or something like that. Really catchy songs, borderline tipsy-gypsy. They only released two singles in an EP. Most of the material on here is from those releases and a Lost album. Just check out their second single, Criminal World. It's an unsung unsung classic of like glammy punk. Hmm. You'd like it, I think, Ryan. It's kind of almost got some power pop vibes to it. And uh, if you like the boys, you would like Lightning Raiders.
0: Oh, I'll check it out, man. I'll check it out. Sounds good.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of surprised they don't get talked about more, to be honest with you. Mm. The Lazy Cowgirls, self-titled debut, 1985. Uh, Restless Records Listeners know I worship at the altar of Pat Todd. Uh, for the Cowgirls, I tend towards like the second half of the band's history, the Crypt and Sympathy era. But I do love the earlier albums and the singles. And this is a killer debut that has so many classics, like Rocket Gibraltar, Time, Drugs. Uh, and it's on the S.S. Tree. Drummer Alan Clark did Time in the Leaving Trains, and the album was produced by Chris D.
2: Mm-hmm
1: the long riders native sons originally on frontier in the u.s. in 1984 i recently picked up the three cd deluxe reissue on cherry red they've already given uh cherry red has already given the same treatment to uh, two-fisted tales state of our union as well as this four disc box set final wild songs that has some unreleased live demos etc this is the fourth version of this album i've purchased i have the the original vinyl um that the whole studio version is also on the final Wild Songs box set, and it was reissued on a single disc deluxe edition on Primo Records in 2011. So that should, I guess, demonstrate how much I love this album. It's always packaged with their 1983 EP 10560, which is also included here. Cherry Red always delivers the goods with these box sets. Um, this has all the demos, some from Radio Tokyo actually. A killer live set from 1985, great liners from Sid Griffin, uh, just like all of them, uh, some great photos from uh, Edward Culver. Uh, what stands out for me um, after binging this the past month is how prominent the like the 60s feel was during this era, hmm, the early yeah. era of the band, particularly particularly on uh, Stephen McCarthy's songs. But Sid's are, are more 60s and less rootsy than on later albums also. Uh, so if you're like me and you have this already, this version is worth picking up. And Cherry Red Stuff is always reasonably priced. Uh, I picked this up for 45 bucks. Sometimes you'll see a, a three or four disc set and it's over $100, which is ridiculous. Like I paid yeah. 80 bucks for that four disc uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers Live at the Fillmore set. The Black Crow's three disc deluxe edition of Southern Harmony and Musical Companion is 125 bucks right now.
0: Criminal. It's criminal.
1: Okay, Landowner, Escape the Compound on Chicago label Born Yesterday Records. Um, I've been listening to their 2020 album, Consultant, also on Born Yesterday for a few years now. I missed, they put this album out last year. Uh, it's just impossible to keep up sometimes. Um, this is bass-heavy post-punk from Holyoke, Massachusetts. Maybe a bit of an early No Means No feel, right?
0: Yeah, I don't know this band. Like Mama Era, maybe? Ooh. Yep. Like acoustic bass head, before you switch over to the Marshall bass head.
1: Maybe, yep.
0: Yeah, 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 I'm with you.
1: Bit of a Pylon vibe, perhaps? Okay. Something in that vein? It's good. Check it out. Wow. Another new one. Okay. Libido Boys, or as uh, Chris Sherry pronounced it, (laughs) Libido Boys? Obviously, I'm going to go with Chris's pronunciation. What do you think?
0: I would. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's our Canadian accents. I would go with libido, but yeah. whatever, man. Let's go with Chris.
1: Okay, so this album is called Opgu or O P G U, but like, there's an, it's not an acron- acronym or there's no like, uh, you know, it's, they're not capitalized with with uh, dots in between them. So I don't know. Um, I'd never heard of this band until they came up. Oh, I'm I probably seen their name. I'm guessing, but they weren't on my radar for sure until uh, Chris brought them up. During our interview, he kind of got to start doing art for bands by working with with this band um, from from Mankato, Minnesota. I'm probably mispronouncing that. I'm sorry. Uh, this came out on Metal Blade Red Decibel. We've mentioned that kind of interesting partnership before with bands like Coop the Grace, Season to Risk, etc. Uh, so this kick, just kicks total ass. The guitar playing and the riffs are totally on point. Plenty of prong. Or voivodisms, maybe. Whoa. With the with the chord choices, um, A vocalist Billy Bisson or Bison um, has this kind of theatrical Merrill Ward Chi Pig thing going. They actually sound a lot like SNFU sometimes. I think maybe um, Chris said that in the interview.
0: Yeah, he referenced them.
1: Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, this was their final album, but it's a good one. You should check that out, Ryan. I think you'd dig it.
0: On it, I've got a couple of Libido Boys singles or splits but again like not on my radar like they are now so that's a good reminder
1: yeah really good musicians okay remember two weeks ago ryan i ended the spiel with the killer dwarves remember
0: (laughs) the pride of oshawa ontario yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh man i went and watched that video what is the name of it where they make the record
1: uh is it stand tall
0: I can't remember the name. It's just ridiculous, but it was a good watch. It was a good watch. Isn't it awesome? Oh man.
1: Uh, Okay. Well, I'm ending this week with another recommend. That's not for you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: London. Is that, is that the reference to
3: killer dwarves?
1: Yeah. Oh God. (laughs) The band's called London and the album's called don't cry wolf. 1986 on their own label, metalhead records. Uh, they also had, had albums on Roadrunner and Noise Records. Uh, their first three albums are are all great, minus a couple of shitty covers. Um, this band is mainly known for being an L.A. hard rock band from the 80s that people who would go on to play in more famous bands did time in. Uh, Nikki Six, Blackie Lawless, Izzy Stradlin, Steven Adler, Fred, Fred Corey. Uh, they were all, and many others, came and went from this band. London revolved around guitarist Lizzie Gray, who unfortunately passed away in 2019. They had the look, they had the songs, but for whatever reason, it just didn't happen for them. Uh, this album was produced by Kim Foley, and it has a song uh, co-written with Blackie called For Whom the Bell Tolls, which was re-recorded for Wasp's album The Headless Children, actually. Uh, Lizzie Gray is kind of known for co-writing uh, the Motley Crue song Public Enemy Number 1 with Nikki Sixx. Um, the band London was featured in the decline of Western civilization part two, the metal years it kind of held up as the example of the, the band that struggled for years, but never made it. I
0: Could, thought that was Odin.
1: Odin too. Well, Odin was kind of <laughs> like, <laughs> you're making fun of me. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. London was one of those coulda, shoulda, woulda bands like, um, uh, you know, so many lesser bands made it, but I guess history is kind of littered with, with bands that fall into that category. So what can you do?
0: Yeah. Well, you can, uh, talk about them in the category L. Yeah. Right. There you go. Yeah. All right. Good one. Definitely some more to check out. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Keep going. All right. I've kind of got like a Mojack mixed bag Mm. for a spiel. Not nothing crazy, but I got to mention a few things two records that were announced that i am super pumped to check out first the new mesthetics record but it's mesthetics with james brandon lewis
1: mm, i and didn't hear about this who's james it,
0: brandon lewis so check it out uh this is coming out on impulse records brand that's impulse. promising yeah so james has studied with charlie hayden Definitely, he's a sax player, and it's just going to be insane. The the track that you can check out online sounds awesome. Um, but also check out, like, and I didn't really know about James, so I started digging into him. Check out the two James Brandon Lewis trio records, No Filter and Eye of Eye. Neo, Bop, Free Jazz, Skronkfest of the Highest Order. I can totally tell why the mesthetics have hooked up with James, and that is going to be a killer killer record sold yeah so good man and you know the packaging from impulse is gonna be insane oh, yeah. right yeah, yeah. Um, I was actually a little surprised at how pumped I was to see this announcement because I, I kind of got a little overwhelmed with this band's releases in the last five years or so but there's a new Melvins coming out and this one I'm pumped for this one seems interesting and again like I love the Melvins I've loved them forever But in the last few years, there's been a lot. It's been hard to keep up, is kind of what I would say, right? It's hard to keep track with the Melvins. And no
1: real kick-ass studio album either, though.
0: Yeah, well, that's what I mean, though. Like, this one kind of has caught my attention. It's called Tarantula Heart, out on Ipecac, of course. It's a dual drums record, though, uh, but with Roy Mayorga. And uh, Roy has been in a ton of bands that you probably know better than me, but very interesting for me is Gary Chester from Ed Hall mm. is on second guitar on this record. The first track and video for Working the Ditch sounds awesome. This is going to be, I think, a good Melvin's album that, that is exactly what you're looking for. Okay. Like a really standout studio album. And I'm, I'm really interested in checking this one out in April.
1: Do you know who Cody's playing drums for now?
0: <sighs> I saw that. I don't. Remind me.
1: High on fire.
0: Oh, high on fire, hey? Yeah. That's cool. Well, Cody's insane too, right? Yep. I mean, you have to be a good drummer to play with Dale. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) fuck. (laughs) Right? Who are we kidding? Yeah. Um, Okay, I've got a few more here, Brant. i got to ask you, I don't know who's on first, but... Watt's on bass. He definitely is. Another split seven inch on Red Parakeet Records. This label seems to exist solely to put out Mike Watt seven-inch singles, and I love it. I love it. This is a a split single for Watt, and on the flip, it's David Papa M um, from King Kong, Tortoise, Slint. They each cover one of each other's songs. Watt does Long May You Burn, and then Papa M does Fireman Hurley Mm. off of one of my favorite Watt records, Contemplating the Engine Room. Quick book report. This is a bit of a re-recommend, but I finally just started reading it. I think I mentioned it a few years ago, but, but I finally started reading it. And part of the reason that I haven't started reading it is because it's big. And by big, I mean it's like it's like a coffee book. Yeah. And I do a lot of my reading on the train. I know. To and from work, so it's I can't really... That's
1: how I am I, too. That's why yeah, I read I, that Estrus book at Christmas, because I could sit exactly. on my couch and read it, you know?
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I've been grinding through, you know, kind of pocket sized books on the train yeah. and then what's well, only once in a while that one of these big guys comes up, but it's the unwound book, the unwound book right. that Numero put out. It's just excellent. I've spoken about my love for the band unwound several times on the podcast post hardcore from the nineties from Tumwater or Olympia, Washington. Um, great releases on kill rock stars and the excellent re-release campaign on numero uh, I've been meaning to read this book for a long time it like I said it's big I just can't take it on the train I actually should mention that I, I actually I really pounded through that Peter Jesperson book euphoric recall that's a good read that's next for me yeah total plate page flipper yeah. um, you know what I'm reading now though that's train size that is amazing I'm on I'm on. Chapter Four, just amazing, is Getty Lee's book.
1: Oh yeah, I've got that. I halfway through that too. It's good. I got hey? it for Christmas. Yeah.
0: Oh, it's so good, and you can yeah. really hear Getty's voice in Big the time. writing.
1: Big time. Yeah.
0: Right. Oh, yeah. just love it. I'm. I know that I'm going to go on just the most insane month-long rush kick when yeah. I'm done reading it. I just know it. Anyways, unwound. Mention. I've mentioned several times before. I love that band, um, but. The reason I'm re-recommending that book to you and to our listeners is because, you know, after years of it sitting on my shelf, I'm finally getting to it. I'm about a quarter of the way through and it mentions SST or an SST connection like every page almost. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's just such huge ties. Not only did did the band members uh, love SST bands and reference their love for the label, but they also, of course, had Steve Fisk produce a lot of their recordings. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Oh yeah, and and because because of, of the Olympia connection there, right? They also were uh, such big fans. They for just a minute had like a Greg Ginn tribute band called Young Ginn's.
1: Oh yeah, I know that band. Yeah. yeah, I think I've mentioned them before on the show. The you Young know. the Young Ginn's. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was there was that connection, but <laughs>
0: I'll recommend tons of SST connections, Great Read. Um, I'm I'm probably going to finish this book first. So I'm going to do like a big unwound kick right before I'm going to go into a big rush kick. And I can't think of two I, better bands to do back to back than unwound and rush.
1: I like your five year plan, man. I, yeah. I still have books for, you. Remember when I was doing like my next 10 or my next 20, like a year ago,
0: <laughs> how many of those have you touched? Oh,
1: not enough of them. Cause there's like, I could do another fucking 30 right now, probably. i know i know it's ridiculous
0: it's a nice problem to have though right yeah it's uh you know they're an investment for sure and then finally finally in my uh mojack mixed bag i've got a quick in memoriam because by the time that this comes out people will have seen that mojo nixon unfortunately passed away yeah and i know you and i are huge fans of mojo and he kind of needs no introduction but obviously uh musicianship, humor, and biting social commentary. Tons of records that we love. Too bad that we lost Mojo, but thankfully we've got a lot to remember him by. I still haven't been able to see the documentary. I don't have, like, you know, I, I don't know how many services I've got. Three or four or five. But I guess you got to get, like, all 14 streaming services in order to get the Mojo Nixon documentary. But I bought mine on see. iTunes, man. Yeah I, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I, need, it, I need it on a i don't know yeah i don't I don't know if i can watch a documentary on itunes
1: <laughs> did you did you see well how bad do you want to see it like i had to see it as soon as i could you know
0: yeah i'm probably gonna i'll probably give it a couple of months and then find a used dvd or something yeah i don't know I don't, do
1: things even come out
0: on dvd anymore i don't know man mm, good point yeah. maybe i gotta do yeah but then how do i keep it forever what do I? I'll have to well, download you, you it. On. I'll, it. Down, I'll download it onto a CDR and and burn it.
1: Okay, whatever you have to do, make some cover art on your printer or whatever. But I will. Yeah. Uh, did you see the statement his family released though?
0: Uh, I think I saw it kind of paraphrased in Jello's statement. Right, like about
1: how he how he passed away doing kind of what he loved. Like he
0: he he was on he was on like a cruise, yeah. playing music, and he had like the time of his life. He shut down the bar, and then he passed away in his sleep. Right. Yeah. 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 Worst so, ways to
1: go. Unfortunately, he was he? I think he was 66, which is brutal, but.
0: Pretty young. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's too bad. Yeah. Too bad. A, a good excuse to uh, revisit those excellent Mojo Nixon records.
1: Speaking of Cherry Red, you can get all his albums on a very reasonably priced box set on Cherry Red if you don't have Are any. they
0: are like Toad Licker ones or Skid Roper ones?
1: All of them, I think. Really? I think so. Or almost all of them. Wow. Yeah.
0: Cause that's like, that's gotta be over 10 or so. Hey.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe not all of them, but you know,
0: good recommend though. Yeah. Like cherry red does do a heck of a job at uh really reasonably priced, well-packaged box sets. You know, if you want to just do the deep dive, Yep. rest in peace, Mojo. Anyways, Brent, let's uh, get into some pups. Yeah.
2: History
1: lesson part one.
0: All right. Like I said, we've been here before. And before we get to Ray, I'll do a quick reminder. The Me Puppets are one of those bands that we've had since very early on on the show because they started off at SST at SST 009 with the self-titled record. Uh, SST 19 was Me Puppets 2, 39 Up On The Sun, SST 44 is the In A Car single, and, Brant, that's also SST 918 because it was re released as a 10 inch, by the way. Oh, boy. Yeah. SST 49, the <laughs> Out My Way record. SST 100, Mirage, where we had Derek Bostrom on. That's a great interview. Yeah. S- when was that? That was like in the 90s with that episode we released <laughs> that one. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, SST 150, Wavos. 253 our most recent release that we've covered for the me puppets was monsters and here we are at 265 the no strings attached comp this one uh, released in 1990 and it was released after the band had moved on from sst and without their involvement if you want a great description of what the band was going through near the tail end of its time at sst and as it was looking to move to uh, a major label, just read Greg Prado's book, Too High to Die. Chapter 16 is called Goodbye Indie, Hello Major Label. (laughs) And it it goes through all of this about how they started looking uh, for a major in 86. They stayed with SST though, because SST let them do whatever the heck they want. Um, But then, you know, soon enough when they were on the verge of leaving sst the lawsuits started flying and the rest is history and then after they left this uh, double lp comp was put out
1: yeah so uh similar to summary screaming trees anthology and next week's vitus comp this is i i guess sst's attempt at a best of meat puppets uh came out in 1990. So their first post SST album, uh, the awesome forbidden places hadn't come out yet. It was released in 1991 on London records reissued last year on real gone music. I did ask Derek Bostrom about, uh, the band's involvement because you can, you can find some stuff online, um, about this being like a contractual obligation as in the, they owed SST another album, but I don't, you know i've never subscribed to that theory yeah, i'm, not, I'm um, not sure about that yeah i mean they were already shopper, shopping mirage and monsters around to other labels so yeah
0: i don't th- i don't think there was any sort of contractual us a certain amount of releases no. i think it was like gin owned the rights to the music yeah, that's right setone yep yeah. yeah.
1: um Derek said you're right we had zero input and we're not informed of its release That's too bad. Yeah. Okay. Before we talk any more about this comp, I want to pivot over to our guest this week. So, um, we interviewed Ray fairly early on when we were, uh, what Ryan,
0: uh, in puberty,
1: greener than goose shit. Okay. Uh, it was for our blog. Um, (laughs) we had big plans for this blog. Um, and, and now we frequently get messages from listeners saying things along the lines of, I just discovered your show three months ago and I'm now on episode 40. And, uh, you know they bring up these specific spiel spiels that we did and to be honest i can't even remember what we spieled about two episodes ago much less 200
0: ago you mean our our blog isn't up anymore yeah. what's the deal man
1: well i you know long story short i guess we bit off more than we could chew and uh, eventually stopped paying the hosting fees on the <laughs> <laughs>
3: well look
0: this podcast costs enough just to put it out.
1: So, yeah, well, yeah, not to mention all the money we spend on all this, all of this equipment and stuff, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just got this new, really expensive mic. Right, exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, so Ray was interviewed for the blog, and because of that, I think I kind of checked him off of my mental list of important players we need to talk to. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously an oversight and and of course, as we got later on the catalog, he kind of just didn't fit in with with the later era albums, but since we're looking back, I thought this would be a good opportunity to to you know correct that error with with our interview with Ray this week, yeah. So obviously, as you mentioned off the top, Ray was a key player at SST circa 85 to 87, the heyday of the label when they were really expanding. He's had a long and interesting career in the industry, which you'll just hear just a tiny fraction about uh, Mm, in our chat. True, true. So let's throw it to Ray. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Ray Farrell. Ray, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. You grew up in New Jersey, is that right? Yes, I did. Uh, What kind of music were you listening to by the time you, say, got to high school?
3: Well, to put it in context, I was in high school in the early 70s. Mm. I could be very long-winded about that, so I'll try and keep it short. But basically, you know, part of what I was into was what a lot of kids in my high school were into. But I had a little bit of a different slant because as I, I listened to the to radio all the time fm radio and it was freeform back in those days meaning that the dj's could play whatever they wanted and there was college radio but that really wasn't you know what i was attracted to at the time but i you know like stations like wnew and abc and plj in new york had this freeform format and while i liked a lot of stuff and i bought magazines and music magazines and such uh, there was a show on Fridays called Things from England, and this DJ on this commercial station would play the top 30 singles from Melody Maker in the UK every week. And there were stores that you could get import singles from. So, this is the t- time period when Sweet and T Rex, Roy Woods Wizard, you know, like um, that was part of what I was really into. And part of what I was attracted to with that music is that. I was really bored with the concept of long guitar solos. Mm,
2: yeah.
3: And I didn't, and I loved the Beatles and I loved the Stones, and I could not fathom spending a lot of time with jams. That changed as I got older. And one of the, the groups that changed my thinking of that was television. And I, I was lucky enough to have seen many of the early CBGB shows with television and Patti Smith. But also at that same time if you're looking for a band that doesn't have guitar solos it was a godsend to see the ramones for the first time because it was the first band i saw that didn't even attempt a guitar solo right and that to me was genius it was like i don't have to listen to any any people thinking that they're good guitar players because if you can't play rhythm why are you in a band at all (laughs) so those that's kind of the beginning of of my interest in rock music kind of came from those days. But I was I was fascinated with the radio. I used to say to people that, you know, back at the time when people would buy cartons of cigarettes, I didn't smoke. My mom smoked. And I knew that a carton of cigarettes was five dollars, but so was an album. And I thought if I'm gonna collect my money from allowance or you know, delivering newspapers or even working a job in high school, that that was a complete waste of money. You know, because a box, at pack, a box of cigarettes could be gone in a week or two weeks, however often people smoke, right. but a record album would last forever. <laughs> so people wanted to know, how come you have so many records? And I said, well, it's because I don't smoke.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just read Thurston's book, and his post-high school years and yours sound almost identical.
3: He is, I think, um, a couple of years younger, younger than me.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And... Um, we both had similar situations in that he would have to come in by bus to come to CBGB's. At some point, I was able to drive, uh, not in the earliest days of it, but but in the middle of it. And, you know, then we could go back to our safe havens in in New Haven and in New Jersey. Right. Uh, but, you, I, you know, you really got a taste of what the... We didn't even know it was underground in New York. We just thought, oh, this is how things work. You know, there's clubs that put on original bands. Big change for me, because in New Jersey, there was no such thing as as an original band, except for maybe Blackfoot and a couple of other bands. But in New Jersey, you played covers. And I didn't know the inner workings of the club scene at that time. But CBGB's was very different from everybody else, because all the other clubs required record companies bought ads uh, before they would book you and so it was always about you know paying to, to play either it was going to be the, the artist or the band uh, or the record company and I didn't know that that was the case at the time I just you know went to clubs thinking you know they're all on uh, uh, on equal ground here
1: yeah I'm sure you and Thurston have talked about shows that you both happen to be at.
3: And then funny is what's funny is you know there was a there was a period when I haven't brought this up with him, but there was a time when I was working for Blast First, which was just after SST, mm-hmm. and I would spend a month in New York and then a month back in LA, and there you know there were time I didn't have that much money. Blast First wasn't paying a lot, but I remember like just going to jazz shows by myself not knowing that Thurston might be into it right. and I'd end up sitting in the bleachers of some you know high school that has uh, a free jazz show and and Thurston would be there by himself right. <laughs> and so I I kind of knew early on that yeah you know, we had more to talk about than just um, punk rock right
1: did you have an inkling that you wanted to work in the industry like by that period
3: already or it's a crazy story but yes and what I was fascinated with was distribution mm-hmm. I was not interested in the in meeting stars making records doing a and I was fascinated with the fact that you could hear a record on the radio and then you go into a record store or or most record stores and they wouldn't have the more obscure things so I was fascinated with why would it even be on the radio if if you have to go 50 miles or to another state to find the record. So part of what I was learning about at that time, teaching myself, I was relatively shy, but when it came to the music business, I wasn't. I would ask anybody any questions I could find. And I got into some crazy situations as a result of trying to figure out what that would be. But um, it was a learning experience, and it was also a very New York experience. Um, because I ran into characters that, you know, it just kind of threw me off. And one of the, one of the conversations I had was so bad that I decided that if I'm going to be in the music business, it's going to have to be in California. Yeah. One of the major reasons I moved but the, w- this guy scared the shit out of me
1: yeah I'm assuming you were talking about guys with cigars and handguns
3: here well it was it, <laughs> I'll t- I don't want to keep you know going off into tangents but I you know I was just checking out um, the radio FM radio and there was this band that was getting played called hog Heaven and um, I liked the songs you know there was one song that sort of sounded like the Eagles and I was kind of into that style of country rock and they were playing some really small town near where i lived uh back when i was like i think a, a sophomore no no i was a yeah i was a sophomore in high school i couldn't drive and i couldn't drink but i talked my best friend who had a car to driving to so we could see this band hog heaven and i get there and, you know, they don't look like the Eagles. They're all dressed in Kiana shirts and those polyester pants, you know, with the built-in belts and white boots and stuff and shag haircuts. Yeah. They look the opposite of a country rock band. And they're playing all these songs. And in the middle of the set, they do this Tommy James and the Chandels medley. And I'm thinking, OK, so they're really into Tommy James. So I go up to the lead singer after the show and I introduce myself and I just, you know, I just want to know about the music business. I want to know, like. Why do you have this separate band? Or why do you have this band here? And how did you get signed and all that? This, this label, uh, the, the label that signed him was Buddha Records. So the guy says, you should talk to the drummer. And I introduced myself to the drummer, who's already got to be in his late 40s. And he is, he's just amused by this teenager that's asking questions about Hog uh, Evan. And um, he, you know, he says... You don't realize who we are, do you? <laughs> I, I think said, I know
1: oh. where the story's going.
3: <laughs> and and I said, no, I don't. I just, you think you're hog heaven. And he goes, we're Tommy, we're, we're the Shondells. Yeah. We're Tommy James backup band. And he's fucking around with doing some country records. So so are we. And then he goes, it sounds like you want to be in the music business. Now, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to breach your, your content's structure by telling you what he told me because it's not pleasant but basically he intimated that I would be doing certain things that were unheard of to get a job in the industry and that the whole industry was like that so I mean and he scares me off I mean literally scares me out of even going to New York to look for a job I find out years later that Buddha Records is a mafia company, Mm -hmm. and one of the reasons why Tommy James loved being there, even though he rarely got paid, was that they had no idea what they were doing with music. Therefore, they had no producers and no A&R on tap. Tommy James and Shondells could do whatever they wanted, and they had all these hits, and as long as they kept making those hits, they had a label. But you know, I, after I learned about Morris Levy and Buddha Records years later, <laughs> the stories—the stories that Tommy James tells in his book. I was just like, oh, my God, of all people I have to go to to ask about the music because I had to pick a mafia guy, to see how this worked. So um, that was the, the beginning of it. But as I said, I was going into record stores in New York. I was getting imports. I was talking to guys behind the counter. I'd go to these clubs along Bleecker Street to ask how they got. I was more interested in getting free records than I was getting, you know, being in the music business. Um and then you know, basically, I left. Uh, I left New Jersey to come to California in 1976. So, like, it wasn't over yet. It was still the beginning uh, of CBGBs, but the first wave of it had gone. I wasn't there for you know the Heartbreakers, Clones, or the No Wave uh, days. I was. I was already in California by then.
1: Mm-hmm. This trip out to where you end up taking a job at Rather Ripped, where you. Were you planning on coming back and you ended up staying, or, or was that the destination? No, I,
3: I had no intention of coming back. I, 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 had a, I didn't have a bad relationship with my parents, but I was like one of those kids that just couldn't get far enough away, mm-hmm. and so I thought the farthest away you can go is is California unless you go to another country, and I wasn't going to do that. So I just wanted to, you know, California at the time was, you know, was radical campuses, uh, the Beach Boys said there were two girls for every guy. Mm. I believed that um, And so, you know, you have these myths these myths you associate with California uh, But I didn't really know what I was gonna do I, I somehow knew and it's another long story about how I knew about rather it which was really through Patty Smith um, and conversations with her mm. but I kind of fell into it. I didn't go to Northern California with the intention of working there. It just ended up very quickly being a, a place I was introduced to by people that knew the owners, and so um, I jumped into it. And again, you know, I was one, I'm one of those guys that wanted to figure out how how place how records got from one place to another. Right at that time is the beginning of punk rock, and people are creating labels to put out their own records. And distribution is kind of dodgy because if you go through the traditional channels like one stops and such, you're it's going to be hard to get paid. Right. And so, if you're fledgling or you're a band that's only going to make 500 copies of something, um, then you know you have to be in tune with this idea that once you run out, that's going to be it. And punk rock was so fast with that. There were so many records coming out, so many imports that, you know, if you pass on it as a consumer in a record store, you might not see it again. And so I was, and I had no idea whether people were going to become famous or not. It didn't really matter. It was just, um, but this record store, when I went to work at Ratherit, they had a very important uh, mail order service, which is how I first knew about them. And I became the buyer for, they didn't call it indie or indies, but I bought imports and I bought uh, singles and albums from from uh, independent um, American bands. The way I would find out about that was really through looking at a review in Trouser Press and seeing an address. Mm-hmm. And I'd write to the address and I'd write to Chris Damey and say, I want to buy 100 copies of your single. And he'd be like, are you crazy? <laughs> and like, no, because we're going to sell a lot of them in the store. We, we developed a reputation for that, right. for being Turn people on to things that they would not find anywhere else. And if you're the only store that has it, then yes, you're going to sell more of them. But the mail order was a really good adjunct to that because, you know, uh, it it could be described in one sentence and people in the middle of Kansas who didn't have a store like like that could uh, find their records.
1: Yeah, I mean, back in those days, being the tastemakers and in a community like that was everything, right?
3: And, and, and part of what was going on then also extended into the SST time period meaning that when you are working in a really great record store and there's a good college radio station and there's several good clubs and there's a fanzine I mean I was lucky it's San Francisco and Berkeley which was had a really great scene um, that rivaled New York and, and LA not everybody had that experience but that's kind of the foundation of what happened later on when the dead Kennedys would book their book their own tours especially when uh, when black flag booked their own tours that's kind of became part of the central theme of what I did every day when I went into work is how do you make all of these things coalesce how do you do this without ever worrying about whether a chain store has the record or if a commercial radio station is going to play it you're in you're in a different industry. And it's one that is self, ideally self-sufficient. And um, anything is possible in that world. But you have to have the structure where people can kind of rely on each other for that.
1: Mm-hmm. On your drive out to California, you had an Alex Chilton encounter?
3: Well, I had... Um, my girlfriend had uh, a, a relative in Millington, Tennessee. And I was not old enough to drink the, Memphis had a weird uh liquor law where I think you had to be 18 and a half it I found the same in a couple towns in California like 19 and a half in Redondo Beach and so I, I didn't drink but although I was old enough to in New Jersey I wasn't old enough in Memphis so um I was a huge big star fan and big star you know was already broken up by the time I get to Memphis. And I figure the first person I'm going to contact when I stay in Memphis for two or three weeks is Alex, and he was in the phone book. Uh, So I called him, and I made arrangements to talk to him. He's really kind of surprised (laughs) that there's this kid that knows this record in New Jersey and why I'm asking about it. And at first, Alex thought I was old enough to drink, so he wanted to meet me at a bar. Of course. (laughs) Uh, And... Then when he realized that I, I like I, I had almost no money, and when I told him why I was there and what my plans were, I think he was kind of um, charmed by that. You know, mm-hmm. like in fact he didn't even drink that much as a result. You know, and and he you know told the bartender to give me a Coca Cola or whatever. Uh, and, and of course Alex was you know mysterious even in that personable setting where you're talking about music he really didn't want to talk about big star and um but he also didn't know what he was going to do next so he'd tell me about these songs that he wrote and you know things that he's going to do and uh then (laughs) and then years later um, when I was at Rather Ripped, I, I did occasional articles for a fanzine called Creep Magazine, and I called Alex and interviewed him. It was a terrible interview, but used <laughs> his phone number as the headline for it. And so people started calling him out of the blue. And years later, when I meet him again working with the Panther Burns, he he, he I told him I you know I wrote this article and I used your phone number, and he goes, "Why did you do that?" <laughs> and I said because. I want. I wanted people to encourage you. I wanted people to, to call you. And he goes, "Oh, well, that happened. Believe me." <laughs> <laughs> because they weren't necessarily encouraging me. Right. But, you
1: know. <laughs> um, talk to me about systematic. I think they were. I mean, you can tell me, but I, I feel like they were kind of pioneers in terms of importing indie music at that time to the U
3: S at well, least to that region was around when I was still at rather it. And that's how I met Joe Carducci. They were in Berkeley. I think he had moved from Portland he, and they they moved systematic from Portland to Berkeley which was a smart move. And there were two owners, I think it was Joe. I forget the other guy's name, but basically they would come in rather ripped, And, and this, he was one of the first, probably the first local distributor to carry independent stuff. And without this kind of, um, how do I explain this? There were other distributors that existed. that were in LA and New York and they were big and they were much more interested in selling Scorpions picture discs than they were, about, you know, getting newer records into the system because stores wanted to buy, you know, German work pressings, you know, of course they're going to buy SST and faulty products and whatever, you know, and British stuff. It's not that they were going to avoid punk rock. It's just that systematic was kind of along the same lines as I had described my going through magazines and looking at, you know, addresses of records. Well, they were doing something similar, I guess, but they were getting the word out that they wanted to distribute to stores around the country. So that happened. Um, I, I forget what years. I'm assuming this was sometime like 19. I can't remember when I left rather it. I think when it folded, it was probably 1980, I think. And then Rough Trade in the U.S. wanted to set up a similar operation, which is really just blocks away from Systematic. Mm-hmm. So I had kind of avoided working for rough trade in the States. I I knew them well because I bought a lot of records from them, from England for rather it. And, um, it was just kind of haphazardly run. Uh, they were a collective, they were, I think they might've been socialists or something. And so everybody's making far below minimum wage. And I just said, I just can't do this. You know, I love music, but I'm not gonna, you know, uh, do this at this level. So, um, if you're interested in talking to me, uh, you know, I don't even want to have this interview until after you are solid. And then they did. And I might as well tell you the story now. But the day I was interviewed for Rough Trade in the US was at somebody's apartment in San Francisco. And there were a couple of um, expats from Rough Trade in the UK that were there, and a couple people I knew from the States. It was was the night that John Lennon was shot. Mm. And I had this interview and I go over there and thinking that because I'm with a bunch of Brits, the first thing I say is, man, this is it's shocking to me that John Lennon was shot. It's like I'm really sad that it happened. And one of the British guys just goes, it was a fucking wanker. And I'm like, oh, punk rock. I get it. (laughs) No No Stones Beatles or whatever. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so i'm like jesus christ you know like and, and then um uh, so i ended up working uh, you know i ended up working there and and it was good and there was a lot of i did a lot of the same thing that that systematic was doing but we had to concentrate more on imports because we were you know bringing in stuff from rough trade in the in the uk to sell in the states mm-hmm. we also had our own label really just to press records for factory and and for uh rough trade just because it would be less expensive to press them in the states uh rather than bringing them in as import anything that that factory was really pushing like uh joy division of course that you know whatever stock we could sell new order was just getting started at that time they had really high hopes for a certain ratio uh and then there were a couple of off off things like the six international label and they did the smash chords record which was great Um, but, uh, you know, then I somehow got out of there. The the older I get, Brent, the, 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 the further away it seems to me and the timelines of them, you know, I could have been working for a place for two years, but now when I think back, I think of it as like eight weeks at a time. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Yeah, I hear you. Did you meet pell when they when they moved to San Francisco, or was it prior to the to the move?
3: I wrote to them. I don't know. I guess they sent me a, a copy of their uh, "Rhyming Guitars" EP, mm-hmm. and I wrote back to them saying I want to distribute this, just like I did with everybody else. Right. And so I I don't remember how many I ordered. I probably did two orders of them over time. But to me, that that record was magic. And part of the magic of pell-mell to me was one, I was really interested in instrumental bands because for the most part, I think that lyrics are not as important as people like them to be. Mm -hmm. And plus singers are just not, I mean, there are great singers. There's no doubt about it. There are people that are, that really come across, but to me it was kind of like, you know, Nobody seems to know anything about what they're talking about and and the one guy that does Ian Curtis He just killed himself. So it's like I mean, I'm being somewhat facetious but my point is is that I was really into the the instrumental thing and what I liked about Pell-Mell is that it was sort of like television and television was for many years my favorite band and there seemed to be two guitars in the band and there was this interplay and there was also that kind of 1981 thing going where a lot of bands, especially British bands, w- enabled you to dance to the music. Um, I know that isn't particularly punk rock, but what drummer doesn't want an audience to dance mm-hmm. unless he's, in, you know, a speed metal band? So to me, it was kind of like it was this, you know, th- there were things that it did overlap to me on on British bands that I liked. And we had a lot of... of our my favorite bands that i was distributing were also among their favorites like orange juice and joseph k i mean i could go on forever about that but there was just this camaraderie that worked and i intended to manage them you know it's a it's a crazy thing in retrospect to try and manage an instrumental band um but i brought them with me everywhere i went no matter what job I had, <laughs> I was determined to, to do a record with them yeah. because it was my life's mission. and And they were very talented musicians, and I knew there would be no end to the 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 interesting records they could make. Whether they would be really popular or not didn't particularly bother me. But yeah, there were going to be limitations. I would book all the shows, and you know, trying and lying to people about what kind of music they played, you know, to get to a gig opening for rank and file in Fresno. And they'd go, oh, instrumental, are you surf? And i go, yeah, 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 we're surf. Yep. And get the gig. And of course, the booking agent isn't there for the show. He doesn't know whether you're surf or not. And as long as people are dancing, new wave dancing, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you know, um, then they're happy. But um, I, I'm still in touch with those guys. Um, we have some kind of chat almost every week. Oh, that's great. But yeah, I was really into them and, you know, it didn't, I mean, I, I still had my job to do mm-hmm. and so whatever I did for Pell um didn't really start until they moved to the Bay Area and I was frankly surprised that they did, but my thinking is they probably came because there was just more opportunity to play more places and it's easier to get to L.A uh, rather than being, you know, stuck just in Portland. That being said, we did a lot of shows where we would go from, you know, Berkeley and and San Francisco up to Portland, Mm -hmm. Seattle and Vancouver and back on these, you know, these little mini tours. Right.
1: Tell me about your connections to KPFA. Did you ever have any, um, interactions with negative land while you were there?
3: Well, the first thing I should tell you is that KPFA came about because Tim Yohannan used to come into my records, the record store I managed rather it. And uh, I did not trust him. He was a bearded <laughs> hippie, albeit with short hair. And he was buying all these punk rock records. And sometimes we only had two or three of them. I got pissed. Yeah. And going so like, you're too fucking old to be buying these records. I want kids to buy these records. Yeah. And I made a stink and he tried to get me fired. And then my boss just said, both of you guys are from New Jersey. You, sh- you better learn to get along. And we looked at each other and going, you're from New Jersey? <laughs> what part? And then all of a sudden we were like best friends. you know. And then Tim asked me to be part of the initial Maximum Rock and Roll with Al Annis it was on KPFA, the 100,000-watt radio station, and they had in, internal politics. KPFA was highly revered as a somewhat political uh, radio station at the time, and it had been through you know decades of, of activism, and it made sense that KPFA would be that place. Plus, it wasn't college radio. It's public radio. And uh, so I did that for a few years with Tim, and negative land i knew from rather it because they were kids from whatever concord or richmond that would come in and listen to a lot of records and uh just like other people that came in you turn them on to these new things and one of the things i think i turned mark hostler onto was no and that's where they got the name negative land right. which is no album so they would come in all the time and then they started self-distributing their records Something that was interesting, Brand, at that time is that like the only bands that made full albums were kind of more arty, experimental groups. So it was kind of like The Residence, Chrome, Negative Land. They had these concepts of, of doing full albums. Punk bands didn't really do that right away. Mm-hmm. You know, The Dills only wanted to do singles because of the immediacy of getting the message onto a record, not having to worry about the context of things spitting on an album that changed rapidly i mean the dead kennedy's first album came out in england and it had to be brought in as an import and then the avengers later on it, it, again now that i think about it it's a really short time period yeah. but there was this kind of pacing where bands were doing their own thing because they were a little bit more on the art side of it and negative land were certainly that so that's how uh, i met negative land and then at kpfa Don Joyce, who was one of the best DJs I've ever heard on KALX, just playing records. Uh, connected with Negative Land. He got a slot, uh, or they got a slot on KPFA after mine for Over the Edge, which was just an incredible show. And although we didn't see each other that much after that, because that that show I had I had, well I I forgot to say that I had my own show after maximum rock and roll Mm. uh, that was on at night and and it was a little bit more industrial and anything I wanted to play. So they came in right after me and, uh, then, you know, I go to SST and I, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I think Mark asked me, you know, to get a tape to Greg Ginn and uh, I sent it and I did. And Greg went for it. Mm. And there was, that was just incredible timing because, Really, 1987 was a year where SST put out an enormous amount of records, more than Warners did it that year yeah and so it was suddenly a different label labeled uh, like sst used to be a label that kind of concentrated on how you know a band that wanted to tour if they were willing to work hard and tour all the time then that was a good fit for sst but now you got a crop of of newer things where it doesn't matter to greg whether they toured or not whether that was pell or negative land or blinded eat god um if they did that was great but if they didn't it didn't really matter that much
1: yeah, was it Joe who asked you to come up to to SST? Joe Carducci?
3: Yes, uh, he, <laughs> he gave me an ultimatum. Uh, I was working for this company called CD Presents, which was this label uh, that put out a couple of good records. The guy who ran it—I don't know what kind of—I I don't know how he made his choices for what he put out, but um, he had a couple of compilations. Of, I forget what they're called now but he did some compilations that had the Minutemen and a few other uh, Southern California bands on it. He did the Avengers album, uh, the red cover one. The main reason that I think I was there, I don't remember, it's a chicken and egg story, and I can't remember which came first. But Billy Bragg and his manager, Peter Jenner, had contacted CD Presents with this idea that they needed a stepping stone label to jump to a major. It was a little bit like the you know way ahead of their time thinking not so much about indie cred but just getting something out into the marketplace because billy was going to tour he could do it by himself and uh it was easy for you know for him to tour the country and so um that was the reason i was at cd presents was to kind of i I learned a lot from Mm -hmm. that process and i tried to can i asked joe carducci if he could help me with getting some shows where I could you know have uh, Billy Bragg play with SST bands we did it was fucking ridiculous. It was Billy Bragg opening for instrumental Black Flag. <laughs> 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 what a crowd and because uh, and, um, nobody goes, nobody went to see him. Instrumental. Right. Um, but there were, there were there were these kids at UCLA that knew who Billy Bragg was somehow you know through the British press and uh, so long story short. Uh, Joe is I'm talking to him about this I need help with this Billy Bragg thing and Joe you know, just says I'm going to give you I'm going to send you something that I want you to listen to and he sent me this package of advanced cassettes um, one was I think it was Double Nickels on the Dime it was New Day Rising or no it was Flip Your Wig and then The Meat Puppets Up on the Sun and so these are the three tapes that he sends me what, what a great um what a great uh introduction or or i shouldn't say introduction it's it's a it was such a great way of of telling me this is what we're up to and mm-hmm. if you listen to those three cassettes as I did, I was like holy shit, mm-hmm. and I knew the minute music and I knew do and I could not believe these especially up on the sun yeah, am like this is unbelievable how good these are. Mm-hmm. So he gave me this ultimatum, like you've got three weeks to make a decision because I kept putting it off. And um, I, I don't think I was working at the time, or maybe I was. I think at CD Presents, or I, I was doing a lot of different things. But uh, he gave me this ultimatum, and I, and I made that jump from uh, uh, Berkeley to uh, Hawthorne, California.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned CD Presents, I. I always have to sneak in a DOA question or reference if I can. What do you know about, I've read Joe's book, and he talks about this uh, these issues he had with Dave Ferguson and, and this CD Presents DOA I record.
3: Read, <laughs> I have to read that because um, the only thing I remember, and this is a vague memory, but I remember him do. I have the test pressing hmm. of the DOA record that Dave intended to put out and David didn't tell me whether he really had the rights to it or not. And all I remember is David's attorney telling me that DOA had threatened his life <laughs> if he put it out. And I said, well, that makes this test pressing worth a lot of money, yeah. <laughs> regardless of the outcome. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's all I know about it, and I and I didn't know the guys in DOA very well. I mean, I'd met them for, through Maximum Rock and Roll, but uh, now now my interest has peaked. I have to read that.
1: <laughs> so you got hired essentially to to do PR at SST at, at SST.
3: SST was a little bit like they. Yes, it was supposed to be doing promotion, but it was just like I could probably do anything I wanted. Mm-hmm. I mean, Joe was doing press, and and Joe's. Joe had a very let's put it. He kind of had a high bar for who should be getting free records because he wanted to make sure he was connecting to magazines or writers that had a broader influence, and this is really limited to the United States. So he was doing a lot of that and and working on those bigger bigger strategies, which was good because it was great to have someone that became the void the the face of SST to that area. But there was all this other stuff going on. There was college radio that was kind of being ignored. There were, you know, some commercial stations that had their, you know, little new music shows on Sunday nights. It was just before the beginning of 120 minutes,
2: right.
3: um, and so I found myself in this position where there's just a million things to do. And the other thing that that I also thought was important when they were, and it could be, is that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, SST was really into having bands that toured all the time. And Black Flag, when I got there, you know, just started a nine-month tour. And they brought bands out with them. So part of the, the, the thing that I wanted to do was to work with, talk to regional newspapers, um, you know, like finding the guy at, you know, the Albuquerque Sun-Times who writes the picks for the week that come out in the Sunday paper, and i spent time on the phone and 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 you know we got all these magazines free because they all wanted us to do advertising in them right. so we're on these mailing lists for all these papers and when we didn't get it then i would just figure out who i who the arts editor or the music editor was and i found that it was very easy you know there were guys that just said just send me a picture and tell me what to say in 30 to 60 words so if you just said black flag is the premier punk band you know and, and some of them would actually know who they were and like um would say well just give me a picture of henry because he's the only good-looking guy in the band yeah. so you know and then that was it that then you get this blurb in the sunday paper saying you know in town on friday black flag and that was that was part of my job but what what i found amazing brant was that i could in many cases i could tell them what to say hmm. And it worked. But to me, if a band is going to keep touring, then you keep working it. Right. And, because you may sell more records as a result of it. Not everybody took, you know, like I didn't chase them if they didn't do it. Mm-hmm. I didn't have time for that. Um, but but if I did get a, a, a good reaction, which was surprisingly uh, often, you know, because um, I thought it was kind of a shot in the dark. Um, and then you develop these relationships with people so that when the next time you have a band coming through, maybe they will write about angst, maybe they won't. But certainly, you know, we had this cream of the crop of, of people that were touring, whether it was the Minutemen, which really kind of stopped for a while, of course, before Firehose started, but um, the Me Puppets especially. Uh, and every once in a while there'd be, you know, like metal metal fanzines that were really into vitus because vitus were ahead of their time. Right. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, again, you know, in 1987 and I started in 85, so it's a few years before it gets to the, to the real thick release schedule. But then at some point you have to make decisions about whether, you know, how many radio stations are going to play October faction. Right. So are you going to waste 400 copies, you know, um, to, to college radio stations? No because you know no one's going to get through those 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 records so you want to concentrate on bad brains uh sonic youth of course um and and a handful of others and then you know there were some you know especially journalists that knew of henry kaiser or they were kind of surprised that we were getting into this kind of improv music territory Mm -hmm. and that made uh that made some writers look look at us a second time thinking oh it's not just punk rock anymore
1: in your capacity as the PR guy did you voice any concerns or objections to to the release schedule especially in like 87
3: no <laughs> <laughs> i don't mean to be curt we had more people i have this i'm my my i i'm playing devil's advocate against what people would think is the right thing to do okay so people might say well they put out way too many records that year if you're in the music business and you own a record company, one of the things you need is billing. And by billing, you have to keep putting out X number of records because it's the only way you're going to get paid mm. for the records that you're owed for. Now, in the normal world of one-stops where you know you you're like profile records and you have a big hip-hop release, you can afford to put out some kind of country rock band because you're gonna get paid for, for those hip-hop records. But you know, when I started there, Watching Joe go through what he had to go through to get paid for Husker Du records or Minutemen records or Black Flag records, and the cash flow would be interrupted as a result of that. Putting out a more um, a rapid release schedule would mean that record stores were, you know, basically in in some cases buying one of everything in more cases than not buying more of the things that really mean something but when you're putting out that many records and you've got this kind of reputation as a very busy label that's very open about signing a lot of, of new artists then your cash flow is probably going to be better and so maybe some of those records didn't break even um, but the the more important thing is that you have billing and it, it's sort of um it's an extreme in terms of economics, but I, that's my thinking as to what SST was up to at the time, and so I, of course, I didn't balk at that.
1: Hmm. Do you know anything about opinion at the label being divided on on whether to to bring Sonic Youth onto SST?
3: Well, um, this is it's it sort of it, it used to be contentious because I have this conversation with Joe Carducci many times where I have told many people that Joe was the reason why we weren't signing Sonic Youth. At the time there were four equal um, voices in, in who got signed and I wasn't one of them. Mm -hmm. And I know that Sonic Youth had made an impression um, because, you know, like they'd show up at a club right before black flag did on the schedule and spray paint. We love you black flag from Sonic, Youth, et cetera. So there was uh, spray paint the walls. So that communication existed. I worked a little bit with Sonic Youth before I came to SST, um, booking a couple shows for them through Gerard Cosloy. That was when they came down to play the, uh, the desolation center. That was, with, that was sort of within an SST universe. So it was one of those things where I think um, they were certainly going to be on someone's radar at SST. And I think that by the time they got signed, I think it was understood. So, as far as I was concerned, I had a conversation with Chuck, with, I think with Chuck, just saying, look, this fits the mold. They tour all the time. They, they go to Europe they are always busy they're actually really fun people um and they are they work hard and they are doing something really unique there's really no one making music like this um so in retrospect i don't know joe contests that that i you know that he was holding it back my my thinking at the time was that he said something about we don't sign record collector bands (laughs) um Meaning that you know how could you be good if you're like he, he, Joe is not a musician, mm-hmm. so if if he was thinking that it's a like record collector bands are um, are are aggregating influences from everything they listen to, like they're writing down something off of a Miles Davis record and then they're writing down something that they hear in a Naked Raygun record, it doesn't work like that. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's um uh, maybe that's what maybe that that's sort of what came across. Mm-hmm. But anyway. You know, slovenly I worked with a little bit, and slovenly tried to get on SST, and Greg turned them down. Oh, really? And uh, what happened was they they were bummed out. They you know getting in their vans and go back to Hermosa Beach or wherever they lived, and they saw D Boone, and D Boone just said, "I'll put it out hmm. on New Alliance." Mm-hmm. And to tell you the truth, there was not really much of a difference in whether you're going to be on SST or New Alliance. Right. You're being pressed. I can't send. 300 copies of slovenly out to college radio stations no one's really gonna you know you gotta just understand what your costs are involved in in promotion so you know in that level there was a level of sst where it wasn't like we thought everything was gonna turn into gold you know it was we're just putting out good music and it it, i could make it sound like we we had this master plan for every release but some of them you just you couldn't really do much for Mm -hmm because they were just, they were good records by good bands and we put it out, but it doesn't mean that you have to spread yourself thin in 1987 to try and work every one of those records.
1: Yeah. In terms of your own personal connections to bands or artists, who else would, were you involved in, in like a quasi ANR situation? Like, did you bring Blind Idiot God
3: into the label? I think that that was i think that came from two fronts i think that black flag had played with them mm. at one point i think that's how uh they knew him the way i the, the, well the path that i took was that i told tim johannan at maximum rock and roll that we're looking for instrumental bands and he says i gotta send you a tape he goes and he goes and and, and you'll love this because it's that arty shit and <laughs> Uh, Cause there's dub and there's metal and, and he sent it to me. And then I passed the tape on to Greg. I think that they had already done something similar as a band where they went, you know, because bl- they opened for black flag somewhere in St. Louis, I guess. And, um, but I love that band. I, I thought that was the, the, one of the best, the best bands we had, but mm-hmm. that's just me. That's just my, you know.
1: Yeah, no, her, it's a great record. What about the trees?
3: The screaming trees thing. I think they also might've had some connection with Greg, but the way it worked for me was that C. Fisk had asked me to, to help book some shows in LA for the screaming trees. Mm -hmm. He sent me the record and I really liked the record. And I went to global, um, to ask if there was anything we could squeeze them on. And that would be Jordan. And Jordan's usually really good with that stuff. So, um, here i am kind of working the record a little bit and i don't really know how it happened but i was talking to texas records which was a a great record store in santa monica that eventually started a label Mm -hmm. that put out uh the rollins band um but back then it was a record store and i said you know um can i have would you let this band play it's going to be hard to get records for you to sell but would you let them play And they didn't do that many live shows, but they had this space where they could do that. And they said, yes. And then I started thinking, well, what are my options here? Opening for Black Flag Instrumental to an audience of 15 or a record store that it's free. Of -hmm. course, people are going to come to a free show. Right. Daytime. And it's brightly lit. You don't have to, like, you know, brave dark corners of lower hollywood you know to to do that and 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 at first i felt bad because they weren't getting get paid but that was it was just a good thing and they slept on my floor and, and uh where was i living Or down to, no i was living in uh elsa Cer- no i can't remember the anytime el segundo um i was lucky <laughs> <laughs> like living in between uh, an oil refinery and an airport and um so that was kind of it and then i didn't really spend that much time with them again that's like the beginning of i I can't really be the champion for all of these bands because some of it is just like they got to get rolling and brian long was doing a college radio and and somebody was doing price whitaker i guess so that kind of you know that was the path it had to take by that time i was kind of working the bigger radio stations working on video some press but by 87, um, I had, you know, I, I had to have other people do some of these, these newer bands.
1: You mentioned global, obviously black flag and Chuck get a yeah. lot of uh, credit for opening up the touring circuit, which you know, deservedly. So, um, yeah. do you and Brian long get the, the credit you deserve for pioneering what could be done at an indie level with college radio, do you think?
3: Um, I don't care about the credit. I know that by the time Brian Long got really deep in it, college radio had become part of an important part of the industry. When I was doing it, and I had done it before with Rough Trade in the U.S., it didn't mean that much. Mm -hmm. Um, It it was like, how do I explain this? So when I was doing it, I, I, I wasn't I wasn't really pushing radio stations to add it into their playlist so that it would go into CMJ or whatever. And then a good friend of mine, Karen Glover over at A&M, who I didn't know at the time, she just called me and she goes, you know, you're like the most unknown record company person in LA because nobody has ever met you and you have all these records in the college charts. Mm-hmm. So I explained, you know, what I was doing, and she said, "Well, you know, there's a few tips I can give you on how you can game the charts so that you can get closer. To, you can get a number one, um, and you're not doing anything illegal. You're just telling them to report a certain way." And so I started liking that game. I was just like, "Wow, I'm competing with if there's major labeled kids that have to, whose job it is to get top ten college radio hits, then." I'm competing with them, and I loved it. I was just like, you know, we'll show you. Also, you also you're bringing those bands up to the forefront of being recognized. So yeah, of course, Warner's was going to look at Whisker do they're, they're you know they're like the number one college radio band consistently. So I knew that that you're kind of tempting fate with that stuff. But I don't think. I mean, I remember having this conversation with Ian Mackay, and I, I was supposed to host a panel at a CMJ convention, a college radio convention. And he called me and he goes, you know, honestly, until you until you called me, I thought CMG, CMJ was for Country Music Journal. Right. <laughs> and, and I didn't know. And I was like, T- why is Ray asking me about this? You know? <laughs> like, like labels didn't give a shit. Independently, right. they independent, like, just didn't give a shit about that. So they're not going to get do the expense of doing that. They're going to put the records out. The bands Their bands are going to tour you're going to you know like how many labels really needed it maybe SST didn't really need it but like i was saying before it's it's being part of that ecosystem because if you're visible and there's a fanzine that's really into it you're going to do a full page ad you know, in in, um, a magazine or you're going to work with a localized video program on cable TV, all of that leads to it. So I didn't think of that as being an important part of the business. By the time Brian Long was doing it, the major labels started to really take college radio seriously. They're doing their version of Paola, flying people out to shows. And I think it was part of this idea that college radio might have been a stepping stone to getting commercial airplay. I don't really believe that to be true. I can tell you that when I was working radio for SST, most college radio stations were much more into British bands that were being signed to majors in the states. Echo and the Bunny men, uh, I'm not singling them out, but it's you know, you get what I mean. It's it's that area of music that is the most palatable because it seems like it's produced in a way where it could be the next step on, on commercial radio. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, there were some bands that did infiltrate commercial radio to one in one way or another. So I think that's what the majors were counting on and the sound of our records. I mean, I'd marvel at the fact that people paid that much attention It makes no sense at all because it did not fit any mode at all of what was on the radio at the time and it didn't have major success but it like the the handful of commercial stations that liked it they understood that there's something going on here with SST and you know Brian had to work firehose and had a major success with that but uh I'm glad I kind of got in before that curve you know because when I was doing it it was like um yeah majors were working college radio but I was I was just relentless
1: mm mm-hmm. When you were at SST, did you have any say in like the the selection for the promo singles or the songs that you would push?
3: I was the only person that cared. So I think you might have seen <laughs> things like where we sometimes we did seven inch singles. Yeah. Sometimes we did twelve inch singles. I'm amazed that SST allowed me to do that. The reason we would do like I Am a Machine by the Meat Puppets or Drinking and Driving was because it sounded a lot better as a twelve inch if it's gonna be played on the radio. Right of silly kind of silly but, uh, th- that i pushed so hard for that but i'm glad we did and then when it was just going to be a song on an album i would just you know run this these labels off of uh, uh off, of, off of the machine that said suggested cuts mm. and i just paste them you know or that's no, not paste them i just like they were sticky right. so I just put them at the top of the record making these suggested cuts i i mean it was like i when people ask me why I did it, I was just like, you know, I just figured, hey, college students, if they're really good students, they've got a lot more to think about than <laughs> the album to figure out what song is good. For so sure. I'm just going to tell them. <laughs>
1: yeah. Okay, you mentioned, like, you know, you always championed Pell-Mell as, as you went along in your career. I feel like you kind of moved along seemingly on your personal relationship with Sonic Youth, like they they clearly trusted you and wanted to keep working with you at Blast First for sure, right? And by the time you moved to uh, to D to to Geffen or DGC, yeah, I think it's it's pretty cool that you also ended up doing some A&R work, like you you signed Southern Culture on the Skids, which is just awesome to me. Like, how did you end up connecting with that band?
3: What? Well, when I was at SS, when I was at Geffen. I mean, I got, there. I, I got my job because of Sonic Youth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said there's a guy that, that knows everything about us. He knows how to do everything. And David Geffen told them, I need somebody like that. Mm-hmm. And when I went in, I was told to look through all the different departments and pick which department I wanted to be in. I look all over the place. Everybody's great. Everybody's really friendly. Um, but the, the, I, I picked the sales department. And so David Geffen goes, why would you want to work yeah and i said it's because when i talk to these people it's as if they're selling refrigerators Hmm. and one of the things i need to do here is if you're signing a band like sonic youth you know we have two things we have to think about one is that you know warners which was distributing given at the time didn't like stores that sold used records Hmm. but that was where all the indies were right and so i said you're gonna have to cut me some slack here because these are the tastemakers this is like if we're not here it doesn't matter whether we're in harmony hut or you know in j and m music world chain (laughs) whatever you know it was the smaller stores that i had to really concentrate on and warner's built a team around that 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 understood because warner's was kind of the same style of label very artist friendly so um you know eventually at some point somebody at geffen said we want you to start doing a and r but really for reissues mm-hmm. and so uh that was where the Perubu box came from and it was at the time it was really hard to find things to to put on cd that weren't that, that weren't already available or had the rights it was just really hard to find them and so and the raincoats was one of that one of those but that was only because that uh, Nirvana had this interest in bringing them on tour if they were to, you know, make a new record.
2: Right.
3: So all that aside, um, when I went to Southern Culture on the Skids, I was basically told, "I want to bring this band in," um, and I was told, "Well, you got to find another a and guy that agrees with you." And that's kind of how Mel Mel got signed. That's how Southern Culture got signed. I w- I had no training in a so it was really a gut feeling. Southern Culture was a natural to me because. First, it was like an indie band. I knew they didn't spend any money making records, right? So we don't need hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the studio. This has to be really basic because we can't, you know, suddenly make them radio friendly. You know, let them do what they do, but now they have distribution. So part of the beauty of, of signing a band like that is that it costs very little with an advance. They broke even faster, and everybody at the label is overjoyed that this thing is making money faster than most other signings so um yeah that was that was the basis for it and i i'm still uh still close to those guys
1: yeah and uh ed crawford ended up playing in the in the band that's, as well.
3: that's right for a little <laughs> while yeah um
1: your wedding apparently served as a like an unofficial showcase for pell at dgc
3: i don't remember much about that aspect of it <laughs> there's a guy that recorded our he, he did the cinema verite you know like i don't know if you've been married before but if you ever hired a friend to do the video um documentation of it uh well i made a mistake when i did that it was sort of cinema verite like i couldn't figure out like you know like what you, you know like guys that, that focus on a flower mm-hmm. while bows are being exchanged <laughs> right. you know like idiot stuff like that so anyway there was a guy that that was, was kind of in and out of when Pellmell were playing um and i you know i just got married i mean i'm not really paying attention to the band all that much but i i know that they were doing what they normally do and they played a bunch of shows in the area at that time uh they were and they were on yeah i was on i was I was working for geffen so yeah i saw that as <laughs> a showcase with, within my wedding <laughs> For the seven the employees that attended my wedding.
1: Yeah, when did you yourself start playing an instrument?
3: Uh, you know, I was I, I back in the late seventies. These guys wanted to start this kind of joke band, and they just said, "Learn how to play the bass," mm-hmm. uh, and it was fun to do. And and I, I learned the real basic stuff um but not with this idea that i was going to be a musician it was really just like let's be in a silly band and do it did you like play shows in the 80s yeah yeah but 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 very low-key things Mm -hmm. um art galleries and stuff like that it was it was a rock band but it was really it was goofy novelty stuff Hmm. so and we didn't make any records um and then i must have told raymond Pettibone when I was at SST that I played the bass because at some point I guess after I left SST he called me and he goes you're going to be in my band and he had already chosen who was going to be in the group Hmm. Um, it was really based on Ricky Sepulveda but he basically just said here I've got all these lyrics you know lots and lots of lyrics that could be either like sometimes their song curse chorus, chorus verse chorus verse sings mm-hmm. and there's other things where they're just kind of tracks where you have to build a song around how he's written it and so Ricky uh, the guitar player and singer for what is now sing-song song is absolutely genius with it mm-hmm. and so we put together these songs we, we were terrible when we played live but we had a couple of interesting rehearsals with uh, Pat Smear, came to one of our rehearsals to see if he wanted to be in the band Oh wow. a smart move not to join us <laughs> uh top jimmy uh came down thinking mm-hmm. maybe you know he could play harmonica on something he was just kind of coming to see what we were doing but that that was kind of like in the pre nevermind nirvana days and by the time that record was was happening i got way too busy um In my professional life, to be able to dedicate a lot of time to this other band or, or or a project like this, so it was it was on hold for many years, many years, maybe a couple decades. Yeah. And at one point, maybe six or seven years ago, Raymond called me and he goes, "Hey, you know, um, I'd like to make I'd like to finish this project." So. I found it really easy. I mean, I hadn't talked to either of the, dr- the drummer or the guitar player in that many years, and they were both on board for it. And um, so then, but but I had the benefit of having played and practiced bass over the years with no band, just doing it for myself. Mm-hmm. And that made the whole thing easy.
1: So, so going all the way back to when it was called Super Session, Dirk and Ricky and you were all... St- Involved at various points in the early 90s at some point. Yeah, we did all these
3: shows and it was usually we, we did a lot of shows opening for Hose. I knew how to book shows so I could get us into the anti-club and and all of those. I was, you know, I, I was sort of associated with being a friend of Sonic Youth. So sometimes people would just let me, you know, be on bills because they're like, oh, Ray has a is in a band now. Um, and Jack Brewer is really helpful um, with getting us gigs and um you know but as i said we were just kind of embarrassed by you know like we didn't understand like what you sound like in your rehearsal room is not what you sound like when you're on a stage and ricky i think ricky might have been spent some time in lawndale but not enough time on stage to know i had no experience well i did experience being on stage but it was like understanding where everybody is musically in a song and if you don't have monitors you got to figure out you got to be you gotta, you gotta have practiced enough so that you know where you are in those songs, and then, um, you know, we had we had a bunch of fun shows. I joke with Raymond that I think every club we played has since gone under, um, so I'm proud of that. Uh, <laughs> and um, I think one is still open, uh, the Roxy. <laughs> but uh, the, um, you know, it was it was really fun to do. Making the record was a lot more fun. <laughs> While I'm at it. Are you? Or do you have permission to assign us an SST catalog number? <laughs> I mean, you do it with everything else. You
1: just <laughs> I wish
3: he <laughs> wanted to be on SST. Yeah. So we just say we are.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, you'd have to take that one up maybe with Raymond.
3: Oh, Raymond! Raymond wanted it to be on SST. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the so when you're listening to the to the album Only Fan, which is. An awesome record by the way like how, how much of that stuff goes you know back 15 20 years ago
3: uh well let's put it this way the, the thing the one song that was haunting all of us except for raymond but the three of us were always haunted by bible mm. we believe that was the most amazing song that we had ever done and if if we never do anything else Let's get into a studio so we can record this song. Mm. And so that was kind of the motivating factor for, for getting it all together. We had other songs that Ricky really hadn't fully arranged. And we had others where, you know, I mean, these are coming from lyrics, Brent, that Raymond wrote 30 years ago, and we're still sitting on these Xerox copies of the original lyrics. Right. So you're bound to lose some in the process. So some songs we didn't do again, because no one can find the words Mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, there were a few, there was one spontaneous thing on the record and that's hair. Mm -hmm. And that really came from Raymond coming out to San Pedro. He brought his duffel bag full of lyrics and I started on this riff. We had this one song that Raymond didn't want to do anymore, but that I, that I wrote the bass riff for. That's all it was is a bass riff. Mm -hmm. And so, um, he didn't want to do the song anymore, so I had to throw away the bass line. But I liked the pattern that the bass had. So I thought, what if I do this same this variation on this bass list so that if I were playing bass in the Art Ensemble of Chicago, um, what would it sound like? So I do that, and and it was just brilliant because we're sitting in the rehearsal studio, we're doing this. Raymond goes out of the room, he's going through his duffel bag and while we're doing this riff he comes up to the microphone and he starts reading the words of hair and it fits perfectly and we were just like oh my god and this was like the day before we were going to record it (laughs) so i was just like this is this is the beauty of working with raymond Mm -hmm. in a situation like this it was just so spontaneous and um and and that's the newest. But all of these songs, in one way or another, came from that earlier period. But Brant, there's like rings of of words that could be put to songs. I bet. <laughs> I I, wrote one. I can't even remember the riffs for it. But he asked me, you know, I did one for to for one of his stories about his tracks about Lou Reed, and I I don't remember it. I because I, we didn't record anything and we didn't play it live. Right but uh but ricky is the guy that sings th- these songs i mm-hmm. mean when yeah. Raymond read them it's usually because it's a spoken word thing or it's a jam or whatever that's going to be but um it's ricky who is the, is he, he is the genius and uh and and raymond and, and ricky go way back um to i don't know high school or something i don't know but they've known each other a really long time and so um that's kind of what this is around. You know, the, the rhythm section is replaceable. Ricky
1: Yeah, I mean Raymond's musical output is generally super arty and experimental. And this is too, but it's also really m- melodic, it's eclectic, it's got that strong sixties vibe. That's that's all Ricky's influence.
3: I think it is. And yeah. and all but it's more more than that, it's about hooks. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Raymond's attracted to, because, you know, like Ray, Ricky is, is a real master at that. And, you know, when you listen to the song, you've probably heard enough that you can tell that some songs how are they they seem like they're for four time. But then there's like an extra line that extends sometimes and it doesn't happen again in the song that is entirely to accommodate Raymond's lyrics. Mm hmm. We can't change any of the lyrics. So the music had to be built around however it was being sung. And um, it makes it a little bit more difficult to learn. But once you learn it, it's it's really easy. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I practice. Uh, I mean, I, I have to go to San Pedro to, re- to rehearse. We say we're going to do live shows. It's not as easy as I, I would like it to be. Right. Um, But I have a lot of people telling me, like, you know, like, what happened? You put this record out and there's no press and there's nothing. And I go, you know, I don't know. I mean, like, Grant, I'm not a kid that's like chasing social media, you know, and looking for as many likes as I can get. I really don't care about any of that. Mm -hmm. People find it good. I want to do good by the record company. I want them to sell out of their pressing. I'd like them to repress it in a couple of years. I know we could sell out of them. Raymond will come out and do some shows with us once i get that together but it's not as easy as i'd like it to be uh, to coordinate all of these things so um you know maybe we'll do that and you know we don't have any we, well we do have other songs but you know to me let's put it this way the thing that i love about raymond introducing me to ricky is that if you notice this this record has almost no punk rock slant to it yes and part of it is because when I met Ricky, it was a little like when you're in high school, and you meet this some kid in your high school that has the same exact crazy taste in music as you do. And when you get together, you're like, talk, you, you want to talk about, you know, some Kevin Ayers B-side or, you know, some T Rex obscurity or something like that. It was as if we got together and made friends in 1973. Yeah. And and I love playing bass for his songs because it's they're they're really fun to play with, to play to, and he is a he's a, a really sweet guy. So to me, it's kind of like this is like a high school dream dream band uh, that I'm able to live um, in my sixties. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, obviously your your connections to Dirk and Raymond go back to the SST days, or even earlier, perhaps. Um, yeah. Do you still keep in in touch with with a lot of people from connected to SST?
3: You know, I mean, Jordan and I have to get together soon. Uh, Joe Pope from I mean, I saw a bunch of people at the um, at the uh, spot memorial. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I do correspond with Carducci, Thurston, uh, Steve Shelley. I, I see Kim sometimes, but only if she's performing. No, I mean, so, unfortunately, some have passed away.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the OnlyFan album is is awesome. I'm hoping it doesn't take you know another 20 years for a follow-up.
3: Well, I think what I'd rather concentrate on is not so much about following it up, but actually playing mm-hmm. these songs live. I know enough about this business at this point that if all we did was like a couple of shows where you get somebody to record the video on a phone of one song, and it's and it's and it sounds good that's posted at least it shows people that we are a band and that we're not just in a a raymond art project right and i understand why people could think that you know (laughs) um because he does a lot of these you know sock tight other things that he's done with Watt. um but this this has more of a construction around it and you know it was interesting, Brent. When I was, I, I decided I was going to shop this to different people, to record companies, mm-hmm. just you know four or five that I trusted. And Raymond says you don't have to do that. You know I'll pay for the pressing. And I thought, oh man, I really, I mean, I'm doing. I don't want to you know toot my own horn, but I I had to organize all of this. Yeah. And so I, the last thing I wanted to do in my spare time was to start a record company. And because if I did, then I'd start putting out other people's records. Right. So, uh, and Raymond would have paid for it. But I liked the feedback that I got from 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 labels. And there was one label that I didn't really say anything. I say I'm a SoundCloud link or something. Didn't say anything about what anybody did in the band. I just listened to band members. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy that didn't even see it. He just started listening to it, and uh, he wrote me back, and he says, "You know." When I listen to a recording, uh, when I listen to an album, and when I get to the last song, I know I want to repeat the whole thing over again. That's when I know it's good. Yeah. And then he found out about a little bit more of the history. And the problem with that was that I loved the reaction. It was like a guy that's listening to it, not because it's petty bone, but the label's kind of like, well, you know, we may not be able to do this for a year because we don't have enough money to put it out. So um and the org music guys are really great guys and they have been associated with with raymond projects before and with watt yeah so i knew that watt trusted them and they're and they're great guys you know and so you know i i there is a part of me that's a little bit like you know if it were the 80s i'd be going into record stores you know asking why they don't have the record um i thought about calling every cool record store in the country and saying, Hey, I live three blocks away and if you order it I'll be in next Tuesday. But then everybody gets fooled by some guy who called them to get him to buy the record and the guy didn't come in to get it. But that would mean at least it's in the store. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, and like I was saying, I'm not we're not we're by no means ambitious. So it's not like I got to compete with some kid who's trying to get his band on self-by-self right. with, right. <laughs> you know, like, I could give a shit about that stuff.
1: Yeah. Ray, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it.
3: Yeah, I appre- I mean, I'm thankful you did it, but I mean, it, I, I'm glad you asked some SST questions, but I kind of feel like you gave me an opportunity to really kind of, you know, boast my resume more than I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> well, it's an impressive resume,
3: so... Well, well, as I said, I'm I'm glad you're doing this because it, you know, I, I look online and I know that, it, and partly is because of, of your your podcast. Oh, by the way, Watt doesn't like calling anything a podcast. <laughs> Hard way. Yeah. fair no, enough. Don't call it a fucking podcast, Barrel. <laughs> uh, so, um, but the thing is, is that I think that part, you know, also the interaction with Facebook means that there's probably more slovenly fans now. To, uh they could have gone platinum um <laughs> i hope did. so <laughs> <laughs> if if all of this was in place when slavenly was wrapped yeah. <laughs> it's yeah what the internet does but if it, all of this stuff remains alive um with your help so yeah. i appreciate that
1: yeah thank you thanks a lot ray take care
3: uh, thanks
0: all right good one good one for correcting that oversight yeah so awesome to have. Uh, Rayon so interesting to hear his perspective on releasing so many records hey yeah. like yeah you know releasing so many records like to make sure the commerce you... side of it you mean yeah, yeah I thought I found that interesting and I mean it did it did result in a number of releases that people to this day kind of say like you know that's crap you know um and we've been through all of those records and prove those people wrong and so not only did it i mean i'm not sure that all of them are going to be heralded as all-time classics but it's great that they exist and they also served a function right like to get to pay the bills and to put out more music at sst and to keep it afloat and moving forward and i thought that that was a really interesting perspective i'm i'm not sure that i've i've heard that before and you can only hear that from someone like ray most of what you hear is they went insane put out too much and a bunch of it was crap yeah and that's wrong on two fronts
1: yep well said uh this tommy james book he mentions you can still get it me the mob and the music one hell of a ride with tommy james and the shandells by uh tommy james with martin fitzpatrick I mean, at his peak, Tommy James was selling more records than the than the Beatles and his career was basically controlled by uh, Morris Levy who was a legendary mobbed up tough guy, like a legit murderer. He was the architect of like the Paola scandal with all the radio DJs and stuff
0: so did you you probably knew that because you've read probably into that area of the music industry more so than I have
1: a little bit yeah.
0: Yeah, yep. I, it's, it seemed like you were aware of that and you recognized the name.
1: Yeah. The country record he made uh, with Elvis's band, My Head, My Bed, and My Red Guitar, is actually a really good album too. Um, he made it when he was on The Lamb in Nashville. <laughs> I got to read that book. <laughs> Ray Farrell, clearly instrumental, pun intended, on getting the incredible rhyming guitars reissued on SST, along Mm -hmm. with Bumper Crop, as well as um, instigating the the Flow album, which we'll be finally getting to this year. And uh, I think it's safe to say no Ray Farrell, no post-SST pell-mell as well.
0: Yeah, very interesting as well to hear how much he loves instrumental music like that yeah it's so rare to hear someone just so into that very niche type of music but uh, but i mean we love it yeah but he really loves it and that was so cool to hear about
1: yeah well i've i've talked to before about how i don't focus on lyrics at all right. like really and you know that was kind of his point as well that you know in his mind lyrics are somewhat um people focus on them too heavily sometimes
0: mm-hmm Sometimes,
1: yeah. CD presents this San Francisco label run by David Ferguson. He was he was David Ferguson was kind of this anti war activist in the late sixties. He's had a really interesting life. Like he was associated with the Black Panther Party. He's he's a white guy. He moved to San Francisco and started promoting uh, shows under the CD presents banner. He brought in Pill. Uh, to the West Coast in 1980, for example. Um, He morphed it into a label around 1983, releasing around 50 albums and singles, circa 83 to 88, including the rap Music for rap People comps, uh, the Avengers Pink album, the Canadian Subhumans' Incorrect Thoughts, a bunch of other cool stuff. He did put out the DOA Right to be Wild 7-Inch in 83 uh, that they did as a benefit single for uh, Jerry Hanna and the Subhumans and the rest of the Squamish Five who had been arrested for... Uh, some direct direct action. Uh, they blew up some blew some shit up. Uh, it's a killer single with a, a bit of a manifesto from Jerry inside. It's a super interesting story. Uh Jerry ought to write a book. Like the guy spent five years in prison. Um,
0: yeah. so wait wait a second, when you were speaking about that and mentioning about how you remember reading about that DOA record, was that in the I Shithead book?
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah, so I'm, so
0: re- remind me of that. Is that bloodied, but unbowed
1: or, well, I'm getting to that. So, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Bloody and Unbound unbowed also came out, um, in 1983 on CD presents, um, which is one of DOA's bestsellers, if not their best, Joe, For sure. Joe says that in his book and he, he, it also came out on alternative tentacles and I think Joe owns the rights to bloodied unbowed, unbowed now, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. I think it's come out on uh, sudden death. Um, you can find ads for what's billed as DOA's 18 Greatest Hits, slated for release on CD. Presents. I've seen them online. Uh, nothing ever came out under that title, but the LP version of Bloodied has 19 tracks on it. So I'm guessing that was an early title for Bloodied But Unbound, and, hmm. and it was just untitled when they put the ad out or whatever. Right. So, so Joe yeah. says in his book they didn't get regular royalty statements for for Bloodied But Unbound. Um, you know, that they didn't get paid for it basically. And a couple of years later, they got into this big law- lawsuit with Ferguson, I believe over the rights to their uh, underrated 1985 album, let's wreck the party, which came mm-hmm. out on alternative tentacles. Yeah. 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 I'd love to hear the test pressing of that. If that's what the, uh, the record is that, that uh, Ray talks about, I'm certain that's what it would be.
0: Let's wreck the party.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, no way. So do you think, like, are you are you suggesting that they re-recorded Let's Wreck the Party for AT?
1: No, I'm saying, well, sometimes test pressings are a different mix or whatever, right?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, sure.
1: And, you know, that one's kind of notorious for having gobs of reverb on it. Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah. I, I think, I feel like Let's Wreck the Party and Murder, people kind of push those to the side.
1: Well, they're both great. Murder, the production's great on Murder. Not so great on Let's Wreck the Party, and it does have some, like, some... It's got a rap song on it, for example. (laughs) Yeah. But, um.
0: Skipper. Yeah. it's,
1: It's got some kind of hokey covers like Singing in the Rain, but it's got some great tracks on it too. And, uh, I bought the Sudden Death reissue that came out, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, hoping that it would maybe have been remixed, but no dice.
0: Nope. They wanted to keep it original. Yeah. It's no black spot. That's for sure.
1: That's for sure. Um, Murder's great though. Um.
0: That's on Restless, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Restless.
1: Yeah. I think Murder's probably a top five DOA record.
0: Yeah. It's got some it might... killer
1: songs on it. John Card yeah. on drums. Are you kidding me?
0: Yeah. 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 I haven't. I only have it on cassette, like in a box. I should listen to that again.
1: You definitely should. I like how he says um, he would have publicists saying, just send me a picture, or uh, whatever, people from magazines or whatever saying, just send me a picture of Henry because he's the only good-looking guy in the band. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it got me thinking like, I'm not sure who put this theory forward first, maybe Carducci or maybe Stevie chick in his book or Michael Azerrad in his, or I feel like it's a common notion that people s- throw out there that Gim was swapping out s- singers, you know, to keep these charismatic front men kind of out of the limelight, um, or out of jealousy in a way. Uh, but that Henry, then he got Henry and Henry became too popular uh, and had too much sway, and so he couldn't just get rid of rid of him. So that's why he started doing instrumental music to kind of sideline him, and then he started writing material that was impossible to sing on top of, like in my head. And then, uh, you know, uh, mainly because Henry got all of the attention, you know, because of his charisma, it pissed Ginn off. Um, obviously, it was his band, and he was writing most of the, most of the music. I've never really subscribed to, to this theory quite that fully. I mean, Keith quit. Ron quit, Des quit, yeah. um, on just good as you, terms as, you, as well. Like,
0: Yeah, just as you were saying that, like the first half of that story does not sound right. There might be some truth to the second half.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, maybe they got nudged out or vibed out in the uh, Black Flag parlance, but I think Greg did instrumental music because he wanted to do instrument instrumental music, not out yeah. of spite, and I think he broke up the band because for him it had run its course, uh, he wanted to run the label and put out a thousand records in one year and uh, because he you know, couldn't fire Henry, he took the only other option, which was breaking up the band. Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting theory and while I'm sure it rankled Gin that Henry got so much attention in the press and did a lot of the interviews, uh, sometimes I, I don't think there was anything more to it than, than that. Uh, obviously, I wasn't there for any of it and this is all speculation on my part, but Got me, I don't know. got me thinking I, about it anyways.
0: Yeah. I I don't have the impression that Greg wanted to get all the press either. Yeah. Like, did he want to, I, I don't know. I think he was happy for Chuck and Henry and others to do the talking.
1: Yeah, but I think there probably came a point where he resented it as well. Mm. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, the Only Fan Record by Sing Song Sung. And that's, f- for people who don't know, it's, all those words are in the title are sp- Start with a P, a silent P, if they're trying to find the record. Um, we've talked about it on previous episodes. It came out last year on Org Music. Um, Ray is the bassist in the band, Dirk Vandenberg of uh, New Alliance band, Tragic Comedy, and also with various connections to Minutemen and Firehose. Like he took the legendary cover vo- photo for Double Nickels, for Christ's sakes. And then Ricky Sepulveda uh, on vocals and guitar. Raymond uh, Pettibone wrote the lyrics, and he sings two of the songs, Morrison Blues, and the track Ray talks about hair. Uh, those are more like improvised with spoken word, but both totally awesome. You know, he he uh, Ray jokes about the album being released on SST, but honestly, it could have been like back mm-hmm. in the '80s. It has that sound. Yep. They, they played with Firehose back in the day, and it it would have been a great fit. Like a track like Pip of a Pipe sounds like Firehose to me. Uh, The song Bible that Ray mentioned sounds totally like it could be a slovenly song. Uh, It's a really good record. Uh, Like Ray says, also very hooky or melodic. I can't remember the exact adjective he uses, but uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, you're really missing out big time.
0: Yeah, it's a more solid release than the Super Session stuff.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, speaking of that, so... Blast First released a picture disc in 1990 called Raymond Pettibone with Super Session Torches and Standards. And obviously, based on what you just said, Ryan, I'm assuming you have it. Mm-hmm. I know you, uh, you collect uh, records with cover art by, by Pettibone. Um, I've only heard parts of it that are on YouTube. Um, that version of the band uh, was Raymond on vocals uh, and lyrics uh, with various friends, including Dave Markey, Uh, on drums and some bass and guitar on some of the tracks. It's notable for having the song Losers, Boozers and Heroes uh, that Watt rewrote the music for and used the lyrics uh, Raymond's lyrics for the song of the same name on Fly in the Flannel. You can also find some footage of uh, the Super Sessions band Live at Bogarts would have been late 80s or early 90s. Bogarts opened in 87 and closed in 93, so somewhere in there. And that version of the band is Raymond, Dirk, uh, Ray, and Ricky Starr on guitar, who I assume is... Same. Same Ricky. Yeah. So check that out. Should we get into this Meat Puppets record, Ryan? Yeah, man. History Lesson, Part 2. Okay, so this was released in 1990 on CD, cassette, and double LP. 24 tracks on each release covering all of their SST releases uh, it's in chronological order interesting that they went chronologically on some of these but not on others like summary is sequenced in random order yeah uh, so is the Vitus comp that we're we'll be getting to next week uh, this and the trees for example are in chronological order I don't really have a, a strong preference uh, I'm just pointing it out
0: yeah I was remarking about it to myself when I was listening to it this week that you can really hear like you can intentionally hear the evolution of the band because of that Yeah. Um, but if it was more random that would be less obvious and yeah. it, might be, it might be good for that reason too
1: yeah well maybe that's a reason to do it that way too you know mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, we're not going to go through these tracks individually we've kind of done all that already it starts out with two tracks from the In a Car Seven Inch. It's basically the A side of the single,
0: and huge inspiration that record in particular to people like Lou Barlow, yeah, and Deep Wound, stuff like that.
1: Oh yeah, we've uh, you know you know since especially I've noticed since started doing this podcast, you read a lot of people like um, it might even been on our show where uh, uh, Kim Thale was a big fan of the early Pops.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because it like it's not my favorite. Yeah. But it but it was at the time hugely influential.
1: Yeah. Two from their self-titled debut um and also one of the tracks, their cover of Tumblin' Tumbleweeds is on the Blasting Concept.
0: Yeah, that is a weird one to put on here. I I could really you know, this is a skipper for me, especially with the vocals on Tumblin' Tumbleweeds. Yeah.
1: Uh, no surprise that two and uh, Me Puppets 2 and Up on the Sun are well represented. Five from Me Puppets 2 and four from Up on the Sun.
0: Lost, of course, uh, covered by the Minutemen, famously. Lake of Fire, famously covered by Nirvana.
1: Yeah, no plateau on here, though. Um, I'll note that one of the tracks is Swimming Ground, which uh, they released as a promo single in 1985 with the uh, Up on the Sun, the title track, on the flip. And Ray told us in our first interview with him for the blog that that was one of the first things he did at SST was work that single.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. What I noticed this time around too, listening to these tracks is really how up on the sun, it really is reminiscent of some fire Yep. for me, that record. And uh, I don't know if it really stuck out that way Mm. when we were actually going through that release at the time.
1: I think maybe that's just the way the bass and the guitar interact with each other. Yeah. Yep. Uh one tra- one track from the Out My Way EP, the, the title track.
0: That's a good cruising song though. Very fire hosey for me again.
1: Yep. Uh four from Mirage.
0: On side three? Yep. Yeah, I th- again like listening to this stuff in this context, I was like, Confusion fog, that kinda sounds like Willie Nelson. <laughs> you know, a bit. <laughs> I'm uh I'm really uh and I I am a machine. The the ending to that track really stuck out for me. And then um, beauty kind of dire straits ish. Mm, yeah. You know, like uh, Kurt is really, really flexing his guitar playing now that we're getting into side, you know, out of side two and into side three as the band evolves. Interesting. But then we get to Wavos
1: yeah we've got three each from Wavos and monsters to to end off the, the comp
0: and i i don't know if i said this during the Wavos episode but i was like i'm not into the cookie monster vocals at all
1: yeah it's not my favorite when uh when chris goes kind of up into his upper register and does that for sure
0: is that what it is yeah <laughs> I, don't, I don't know i kind of thought that for the first time ever too listening to meltdown from monsters i'm like is, kind of Reminded me of She Ain't Pretty by the Northern Pikes, who who you know, I love. Yeah, um, but definitely <laughs> I don't know why. But for some reason this time too, way at the end of side four attacked by monsters. For me, just listening to it, I was kind of singing to my head, you know, reminds me of Melvin's. <laughs> Sounds like Soundgarden, kind of like the guitar playing, like it's of that era, the heaviness that Kurt is bringing to his guitar. Loved it. I I was, I was really digging the monsters tracks in a different way than before.
1: Yeah. I was actually looking around before we recorded tonight for some, uh, meat puppets pictures to post on our Instagram, uh, for this, this episode. And I don't think I knew this before, but I found one, uh, where, uh, Chris is wearing a shirt with the sleeves cut off and he has the, the monsters cover art tattooed on his bicep. I didn't, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Oh. No glaring omissions for me. Um, it's a great overview of the you know of their SST output. There's also a comp called Classic Puppets that the band sanctioned and compiled for Rykodisc Disc in 2004 after winning the uh, you know their back catalog from SST. Uh, it also has 24 tracks actually, uh, but very little crossover with this one, which kind of shows you maybe even how much extra the band might have been pissed off about this comp. It, mm. You know, not even the songs that they would have chosen. Um, I only counted nine tr- a nine-track overlap between the two. Um, uh, but I guess it's all also subjective because uh, the SST comp only has four of our ballot result picks out of a possible eight. So
0: hmm.
1: we're batting, you know, 50% here.
0: Interesting. And then the SST also repurposed prior... Kirkwood artwork <laughs> for for the album cover right
1: yeah insult to injury it's for sure I think one of Chris's pieces uh, you know Kirk did stuff like this too um, kind of doodling these these characters but my money's on Chris the the LP just credits it to the to the meat puppets
0: yeah and then the only other notable piece of artwork is on the back cover between the SST logo and the credits there's a little Kirkwood snail.
1: Oh yeah, uh, the inside of the CD has uh, one of these, like the heart with the arrow on it. Like a, a it's a double panel insert. Typical SST basic as shit artwork. Um, this is the the like the same heart and arrow thing that the band was holding, like a neon version of.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, on yeah, the, yeah.
1: On the cover of Mo- on the back cover of Monsters.
0: Right. Um, My. My LP is a cutout, and it's one of those cutouts where whoever was doing it just went ape shit on it because <laughs> because it's like two and a half inches deep into the cover.
1: Yeah,
0: it's just ridiculous. Why do they
1: cut it out? Like just punch the hole in it.
0: Yeah, it's just a different way yeah. of showing the cutout. I've I have a few where they you know they clip the corners. Yeah, I've
2: and they are and,
0: and they are just they're like 1 micron away from the actual vinyl. They cut so much of the corner off. Yeah. It's crazy.
1: Um Is Yours on black vinyl? Yeah. Yeah. It also came out on two different types of pink vinyl. So they were definitely really starting to do that during this era.
0: Got to hit the merch.
1: Yeah. Ballot result?
0: Yeah, man. Ballot result. So remind me, what are the four we picked?
1: I'm, do you want to guess the songs off of here that we've picked?
0: No, because I'll get them wrong. <laughs> okay. Forget it. Tell me the four.
1: We picked In A Car for the the reissue of the In A Car single. Yeah, yeah. We picked Lake of Fire for Meat Puppets 2, kind of the obvious choice. Yeah. We picked the title track for Up On The Sun. Uh-huh. We picked Automatic Mojo from Wavos. Oh, So no those way. are all out, uh, not represented here. The song Meat Puppets from the self-titled album was one that we picked. The song Not Swimming Ground from the Out My Way EP. Love Our Children Forever from Mirage and The Void from Monsters. Ooh. For me, I could go with almost any of these actually, especially the latter half. No no surprise there.
0: Like sides three and four? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Same here.
1: Lost would be a good one for me. Uh, Swimming Ground is good. Confusion Fog, Meltdown, Look at the Rain.
0: Oh, really? Look at the Rain, even with the Cookie Monster vocals?
1: It's not as bad as some of the other ones.
0: Uh, I'm not into that one. Pick another one. (laughs)
1: Lost? Let's do it. Okay.
0: I, I love it because when I hear it, it reminds me of the Minutemen too. And why not be reminded of the Pups and the Minutemen at the same time?
1: You know what? I was singing it in the shower before we recorded, so that's a good omen. Gross. (laughs) Gross!
0: <laughs> Get that image out of my head.
1: Yeah. Hey, thanks to Ray Farrell for being on the show.
0: Totally. Yeah. Totally.
1: Ryan, what's next week?
0: Well, you already said what's next week like fourteen times on the show, but I'll I'll remind you. It's SST two sixty six, <laughs> the Saint Vitus, heavier than thou comp, and uh, I'm looking forward wow. to it because you know what. You you turned me into a Vitus fan during the podcast.
1: Being a weapons grade ball breaker here tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And that's our show. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content.